Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. So our conversation today will focus in part on the investment implications of extreme weather, how to approach impact investing, and a milestone as it relates to diversity and inclusion in corporate America. So joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Anthony Eames, Vice President and Director of Responsible Investment Strategy for Calvert Research and Management. So, Amantia, Anthony, it's great to be back with you both. I, I recall we last were all together as a group. This was in April, so it's great to be together again and looking forward to our conversation today. Great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to the discussion. Absolutely. So in the way of context, as a reminder for our listeners, our clients, of course, the topics that we'll be hitting on today, uh, they coincide with the three focus topics that were highlighted within the most recent monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, which, by the way, is now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO for your reference. Though, as I alluded to in my introduction, Amantia, maybe we can begin with some of the implications of uh, these extreme weather events and we have seen quite a number of them affecting different regions across the globe over the past few months. And this spans everything from record-breaking droughts to severe hurricanes, effects even in places such as uh, where we are here in the Northeast that are not quite as common. So I'm curious, Amatia, what does this all mean for investors and their portfolios in terms of both risks as well as opportunities? Thanks, Dan. And, uh, you know, I, the, the weather is really not something that uh, we would have expected to pay so much attention to in our CIO research. But here we are in extraordinary times. So, you know, uh, a little joke aside, as you know, we have observed uh, a lot of these extreme weather events, which are increasing in intensity and, and have affected us. Uh, based here in the Northeast as well, you know, Hurricane Ida, uh, Ida just recently, uh, but also flooding in Germany and Belgium just a few short weeks ago, and the wildfires in Greece, which were extra- extraordinary for the region, and as well as um, this drought in Taiwan at the moment that is the uh, most severe in, in about 50 years, I believe. So, and these are just really a short sample of, of these types of events that we've seen just in the last, call it, four to six weeks. And uh, we're seeing significant costs uh, both on on human life, first and foremost, that these events are, are imposing. But, you know, secondarily and importantly for investors, we're seeing costs that are uh, coming in, in in the form of economic losses or, or additional rebuilding expense that is required. Um, and just to put one data point, one number around this, uh, the insurance company Aon calculated that the insured losses as a result of these types of events just in the first half of 2021 reached $42 billion, uh, setting a 10-year high according to their calculations. So as we think of, you know, what are these types of costs and what are implications for investors, we, we can see at least three immediate ones. The first is that, uh, in our view, these types of extreme weather events, uh, which are intensifying, need to be considered explicitly and intentionally in investment frameworks increasingly and, and become part of the decision-making process that investors undertake. Uh, we're seeing both these acute type of risks uh, that, are, that are imposing the costs um, 
broadly to economies, but also explicitly to industries which are mostly, um, you know, have a higher exposure to physical assets like infrastructure, transportation, real estate. Those among just some of the industries that are most acutely impacted in the short term. We're also seeing chronic risks uh, that that appear as. Um, climate patterns gradually shift over time and result in things like the protracted drought in Taiwan, for example, that I mentioned earlier, or rising sea levels, which may impose systematic changes over supply chains or may result in systematic higher insurance costs for some parts of, of the country in the U.S., for, for parts of the world in specific sectors. So it needs to be taken into account, we think. Secondly, as we're getting closer to the Global Climate Summit uh, that will happen in the first week of November in Glasgow in the United Kingdom, we're seeing that regulators around the world are really taking notice, uh, not just of these events, but also of the long-term data that is presented by scientists, as well as consumer and citizen attention that is being paid to these issues. And so we expect that this meeting will bring additional announcements, additional commitments from regulators and governments that are looking to mobilize uh, the resources and the trillions of dollars that are needed to, to meet the net zero carbon emission aspirations that they've set and we have discussed before on this podcast. And then finally, you know, uh, I'm talking a lot about risks right now, but the third takeaway is that opportunity is a key part of this equation. So despite, uh, you know, this code red type of report that, that uh, we, we talk about, the report that was issued by the International Panel for Climate Change, we still believe that uh, the climate transition is bringing compelling opportunities for innovation, is bringing compelling uh, long-term investment opportunities uh, for companies that are out there providing solutions these issues and, and they're everywhere in industries ranging from sustainable food production to smart water networks to you know of course smart mobility electric vehicles and renewable energy which is um, top of mind these days for investors. Anthony to Amathia's point there are a wide range of implications at play here across a variety of areas as a result of these extreme weather events which unfortunately seem to be occurring more frequently so Anthony how are these extreme weather events affecting affecting the regulatory and legislative environment leading up to the U.N. Climate Change Conference in November? You know, Dan, it's a great question, and it's, and it's great to join uh, you and Amantia for another discussion. Um, you know, the, the extreme weather events that we have been experiencing as a society, as a, as a globe, um, and, and the personal impact, the personal loss is really devastating. Um, I think that these events are also, um, and, and frankly, the financial implications of these, as Amantia was talking about, are certainly getting investors' attentions, and it's also uh, they are getting the regulators' attention as well. I do think it'll mobilize finance to climate solutions. I think uh, these events are going to put more pressure on companies to make um, commitments to lower their carbon emissions, their greenhouse gas emissions. Um, A recent trend that we're seeing uh, is companies making net zero commitments, where at some point in the future, you know, pretty often like 2050, um, have a commitment where they are either not producing carbon emissions or they are offsetting all of the carbon emissions that they that they uh, are making and, and importantly have invested in kind of renewal, renewable energy and, and energy efficiency. There are companies that are flat-footed, I would say, on their sort of climate plans and operational preparedness, and those companies are at increased risk. 
because investors are really starting to think about this. Um, and by the way, managers are actually taking this up too. There actually is a net zero asset manager initiative that, uh, that we at Calvert signed on to and many other managers have um, over this last year. So I, I think as it relates to investments and investment kind of decision-making and building portfolios, um, operating companies are distinguishing themselves on client, uh, climate preparedness. Uh, there, we can sort of um, evaluate companies' performance and we can separate leaders from laggards. And of course, we use that information to, to build investment portfolios. Uh, the goal is to identify the leaders, uh, but also the improvers, because there are a lot of companies in sort of the middle of the performance trajectory that um, have recognized that there are opportunities that they can make to, to invest in the business and they're starting to do so. And, and that's the, the kind of positive change that, that we want to position our clients to, to participate in. Um, maybe just quickly on sort of regulation. Um, so things are really moving in Europe. The SFDR, the sustain, uh, Sustainability Finance Disclosure um, Regulation is, is in full swing. Um, that managers who are selling investment strategies there in Europe have to basically uh, categorize uh, their investment strategies on how much of uh, whether ESG is integrated, how much it's integrated, and then are there sort of clear impact or intentionality uh, goals as it relates to um, that integration. Um, we do think that the SEC is going to take this up in a meaningful way here in the U.S. Um, we would anticipate some sort of climate disclosure requirements for operating companies, which, which, frankly, we would welcome because then that would make our job of assessing companies' performance much easier. Um, I do think that there are also going to be demands and opportunities for managers, investment managers, to better uh, maybe describe and, and even you know prove or categorize how they're going about uh, uh, building investment portfolios, ESG portfolios. Probably not to the extent of the SFDR in Europe, but probably something. And then lastly, I'll just say, Dan, that there's, there's some, we think that we anticipate that there's going to be some movement in the retirement space as it relates to DOL. Um, as, as you're probably aware, um, there's been some uncertainty on whether a uh, retirement plan can use an ESG fund in, a, in an ERISA governed plan. Um, it still happens. It's just there's some, some hurdles to jump over. We, we anticipate with the, the current administration leadership at DOL that there'll be some guidance that comes out that sort of clears the air as it relates to that and, and could even be supportive of, uh, frankly, even encourage the use of ESG funds in, in retirement plans and ERISA plans, which I think could be a pretty significant uh, development in the industry. Clearly, many calls for action, and it does seem like there is a will, especially from the private sector, to be a part of the solution to offset and mitigate these growing climate risks. So we'll be curious to see what comes from the upcoming UN conference in November. Uh, maybe we can now pivot over to uh, the next focus topic for this month, that being in impact investing. And Amantia, as you know, the impact investing market size, it does continue to grow as investor interest in sustainable investing opportunities increase, which is great, though the question becomes, how can investors identify the right impact investing opportunity for their portfolio? So what kind of guidance there, Amantia, can you share with us? Thanks, Ben. And and you're right, that is the right question. And I would even uh, say that um, in addition to, to the question, how do you identify the right opportunity for a specific investor in terms of impact investing, really the preceding question is what, what is impact investing? How is it different from this conversation that we were just having around uh, environmental, social, and governance, around climate, around sustainability broadly? So 
Um, let me, you know, if, if you'll allow me, I'll just spend a couple of minutes uh, refreshing, I guess, our, our listeners around how we see these two concepts as related but different. Um, we think of impact investing very much as a subset of the broad sustainable investing category that we spend a lot of time talking about in this podcast and uh, call in particular. Um, impact investing as a subset of sustainable investing is a strategy for investors who want to create tangible and measurable uh, impacts or positive change on people and planet while always uh, looking to achieve market rate risk-adjusted returns. And the word create here, investors creating this change, is, is really uh, key to this concept and it's how we differentiate it from broadly sustainable investing. Because we think that, you know, all investing, all companies ultimately have an amount of impact on the world, uh, positive or otherwise. Um, and what makes impact investing distinct as an investment approach is asking the question, you know, whether the incremental invested dollar that is coming into a strategy is resulting in a specific positive change. So, so this idea of the investor being able to contribute through their investment in creating additional change that wouldn't have been there otherwise is what makes impact investing as distinct from broad sustainable investing, which is just a matter of looking to gain um, exposure to these industries that are providing solutions to global challenges or looking to invest in companies that, uh, just borrowing from Anthony, you know, are, are prepared. They're not flat-footed uh, as, uh, as our world is changing. So in terms of helping investors identify the right impact opportunities for them, we would say, um, firstly, looking for strategies that are enabling this additional contribution is, is key. That's the starting point. And that often presents opportunities in private markets because of the longer holding periods and, and, and more control over companies often, but also through public markets, through strategies that are intentionally engaging with companies for change. Secondly, um, we think that investors should be looking um, to understand whether there's a commitment from the strategy and, and the investment managers to actually set clear objectives in terms of the change that they want to achieve, as well as uh, set up a measurement plan and commit and actually measure the change that they are able to and, and hoping to generate through this investment when it comes to, again, people and planet, society and the environment. Um, and this commitment to measurement and then reporting and verifying that uh, there's a correlation at the minimum, if not a causation, between the additional incremental dollar invested and the social change um, that we see in the world is, is really kind of the, 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 the key component of impact investing. And, you know, in terms of the, the market size, which is really where we started, we saw that the International Finance Corporation um, a few weeks ago issued a new report uh, where they noted that um, investors have now allocated 2.3 trillion U.S. dollars to impact investments in 2020. And I will uh, add a caveat here to note that the majority of these assets were driven by development finance institutions. So think... Uh, for organizations like the World Bank, for example. Uh, and some of the strategies counted in here may have been targeting potentially below market returns, although still aiming for positive financial returns. But of the $2.3 trillion, $600 billion or so uh, was allocated from private investors. 
So again, you know, it, it's private investors are continuing as well to to be part of this this shifting trend and and are are driving assets towards these strategies that that are driving this measurable positive change that we're talking about. Amantia, the refresher on the concept of impact investing, hitting on those key distinctions, it's important to understand. Uh, That was very helpful. And Anthony, as Amantia alluded to, thematic impact investing, uh, they often go hand in hand as investors may seek to address specific issues that uh, they view as in particular significant or important. So Anthony, can you address this intersection more deeply and uh, maybe speak to where we are seeing opportunities right now in both the thematic and impact Space. Sure. Yeah. Happy to, Dan. And I, I thought that was a terrific uh, primer from um, Amantia um, on what sort of private uh, impact investing. Impact investing is one of those phrases that gets thrown around, but the but sort of the classic definition is kind of private, you know, not public or not listed investing. So I think that's an important delineation. I, one way to think about it first is from an asset class perspective. Um, so obviously, uh, when we think about private equity, think we think about sort of you know, startup companies, growth-oriented companies, but there also are opportunities in in other kinds of uh, of equity investing, uh, infrastructure. As we know, there's a lot of uh, work as it relates to um, sort of decarbonizing our economy, and um, as that relates to kind of infrastructure, transportation, real estate. So, infrastructure and real estate, I think, are also really interesting private impact investing opportunities. Um, but it's not just about equity investing. There's there's also um, uh, work happening on the fixed income side. And I, I would point to um, sort of two areas there. On the private side, there are uh, entities uh, that issue community investment notes. And uh, community investment notes are investing in uh, CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions, where they are taking capital, investors' uh, money, and um, and then offering, in many cases, below market interest rate loans to people who, frankly, because of their socioeconomic uh, situation, can't walk into a bank and borrow money to start a business. Um, so there's a lot of micro enterprise, it's sort of access to capital, um, and then that also supports uh, affordable housing. So community investment notes is a really interesting area. And, and you're right, Amantia, sometimes it's below market interest rates, but frankly, interest rates are so low that generating a one or two percent yield on a community development uh, uh, investment is is obviously is is actually quite competitive with where treasury rates are. Um, and then I, w- I will touch on one area of the public market markets, which is green bonds. So the green bond market is really proliferating. Ten years ago, only the World Bank was issuing labeled green bonds. Now, you know, they're they're frankly hundreds, if not even thousands, of issuers of green bonds. And there are areas such as energy efficiency. Uh, you know, transportation and infrastructure and sort of the greening of that, of, of, of those areas, um, renewable energy production, the transmission of renewable energy and smart grid. Um, so the good news is, is that there are, you know, sort of multiple asset asset classes to explore here. Some of the most prominent themes that, that we see, and, and I think some of these are actually um, um, discussed in, in your research report, Montia, but green technology, uh, clean technology, um, carbon reduction, um, whether that's offsetting reduction or actually sequestration uh, type strategies. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot happening in the food area, sort of the food revolution, um, you know, sourcing more locally um, food in areas around the country, healthcare, um, DEI, uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, 
education services, affordable housing, and, and financial inclusion are probably the most prominent themes that we see. And then there are some that are not so specific to a theme, but they might align more broadly with the uh, sustainable development goals. And I think what, one thing that you, um, I think, called out in the paper, which I just wanted to emphasize, Amantia, which is this importance of measurement, because there are, there are a couple different kinds of private impact investing approaches. One is sort of an intention to have impact, and then the other is a strategy where it's actually measured. And I think that our uh, the opportunity really is with this measurement piece. And I think our clients are increasingly looking to see the impact metrics, the measure, the results of the measurement. You know, how many jobs do we create? How many affordable houses or units did we build? Um, how much carbon was was offset or reduced? Um, how much renewable energy was produced? And how many homes does that power? So I, th- I do think that we're going to see just this uh, continued explosion of, of interest in this space. And I think that the opportunity for managers to better measure uh, the impact that's being generated in these, in these portfolios is going to be really important and I think also exciting. From the sounds of it, clearly a lot of opportunities to be realized across asset classes and areas. And our listeners, as well as our clients, now have a much better sense for how to determine the right opportunities that fit their circumstances and objectives. Of course, for our clients listening, and we do encourage that you have a follow-up conversation with your financial advisor about allocation. So uh, maybe we can pivot now to our third and final focus topic for this month. Uh, This was a positive development as it relates to diversity and inclusion. Amanti, I know in August, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, uh, they did approve the NASDAQ Board Diversity Disclosure Rule for all U.S. and foreign companies listed on the stock exchange. So, Amanti, what does this rule really mean for NASDAQ-listed companies, and what does it mean for investors? Sure. So, this was truly, as you say, Dan, a positive development when it comes to the topic of diversity and inclusion. Also, a reminder that even though we're we're talking about climate a lot and the environment when it comes to sustainable investing, it's not all climate all the time. And social issues continue to stay up on the agenda for investors. So, um, the SEC approved the rule that was proposed by NASDAQ back in February, I believe, uh, which now requires all listed companies on the exchange, all 3,000 or so of them, to, number one, disclose um, a series of, of standardized data points on board-level diversity, um, as well as, number two, either have two di- directors who are diverse or explain to investors why they do not. So, you know, report or explain. And uh, companies uh, on the NASDAQ will have until 2025 to comply with the second requirement. In particular, they'll receive uh, support in, in terms of finding um, uh, kind of if, if they need support to, to, to identify directors uh, who are diverse either from a gender perspective or any of the other specified categories, um, they'll, they'll be able to have that from this, from the exchange. Um, and there's some flexibility and, and slightly different rules that are adjusted to the context for foreign issuers. So um, I think the exchange and the SEC are making the rules both be flexible to accommodate the needs of companies, but also are sending a strong signal that this, this is something that matters, that is material, and, and investors care about. And in terms of impact, you know, I, I mentioned there are about 3,000 or so issuers listed on the exchange, U.S. and foreign companies. Um, and if you look at just the top 100 issuers, um, their cumulative market capitalization as of September 1st was over $21 trillion, according to the NASDAQ-owned data. So it's, it's a 
significant impact potentially. Now, I should note um, the U.S. isn't the only um, region that is moving in this direction of incentivizing and the companies to, to disclose more when it comes to how they're doing on diversity. Um, since 2019, the U.K. has required all large companies to disclose the gender pay gap that they have, um, and the U.K. Financial Conduct Authority is currently leading the consultation um, around a similar idea. They're looking to understand whether they can impose specific targets on uh, gender and ethnic diversity for companies that are um, listed in, in the U.K., so lots of um, lots of movement around this area globally, we, we think, and and overall, in our view, similar to what Anthony said earlier, actually, as companies are standardizing, are are reporting and disclosing in a standardized manner, that should benefit investors, not just investor investment managers uh, like Halbert and others, but but really all of us as we're trying to distinguish and differentiate between companies based on their performance on human capital and diversity, you'll be really better to have this more granular information than starting to distinguish based on, um, you know, the very first fact of whether companies are willing to disclose at all or not, which is really what we're um, seeing at the moment. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that board-level diversity is important and, and useful, but really just scratching the, the surface here. Um, we think there's a whole wealth of other human capital data, like workforce diversity, for example, or health and well-being policies, or retention and turnover rates, um, and many other similar data points, which, um, as companies are disclosing them further, help us as investors to have a more holistic view of them and identify companies that are leaders and are better positioned for the long term um, on, on these aspects. Well, there is indeed a lot of positive momentum, uh, which you had outlined for us, Amantia. Though, to run with your latter point there, Anthony, as Amantia had cited, diversity inclusion initiatives, they really target the S, social, in ESG investing. So how do companies, Anthony, benefit from improving here? And where is the work that really still needs to be done? Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's, it's totally right to focus on that on that area. Dan, and that was such a helpful uh, review of, of the overall topic, Amantia. So I think that, um, you know, there are clear benefits to operating companies that, that offer diverse and inclusive work environments. And um, I think a great place to look is a McKinsey study that actually came out last year, 2020, that um, offered a, a bunch of research proof, essentially, that, that this matters um, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because it's um, a better thing to do from a uh, it's important thing to, to do from a financial perspective as well. So they, they, there was research that basically showed a correlation between a more diverse leadership team at a company and financial outperformance. And there are really three examples of this. So companies that are in the top quartile for gender diversity on their executive teams, these companies were 25% more likely to outperform on profitability. 27% more likely to have superior value creation. And it's also not just gender. So companies that were in the top quartile for ethnic cultural diversity on executive teams were 36% more likely to have industry-leading profitability. And it's not just on the upside, but it, it goes the other way as well. This actually can be a penalty for companies that do not address this issue. Companies in the bottom quartile for both gender and ethnic diversity were 27% less likely to achieve above average profitability. 
So I think it's it's clear that there is a financial impact um, around this issue. Um, and maybe I'll just emphasize a couple things that Amante said. So board level disclosure is important, but but it really is an incomplete picture. Uh, we need to see what diversity looks like all the way through an organization. The, the board, uh, the executive sort of leadership team, the management team across the company, and then the broader workforce. So there's sort of four important cohorts. Um, and companies do make this diversity information. Uh, they disclose it to the government through their EEO1 report. But companies are not required to make that report or the findings of that report public. And uh, we actually took this up as an engagement issue. We looked at the top 100 companies in our flagship index in the U.S. and found that only 18 of the 100 best companies, biggest companies, um, publicly disclosed their diversity data. So we've actually launched an engagement campaign, started a little more than a year ago, um, basically putting together kind of a business case for why companies um, should disclose this data. I think it was Mark Twain who said that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Sometimes you need the information to then be able to assess their performance. And I'm uh, very pleased uh, to say, Dan, that 57 of the 82 companies that we reached out to have agreed to disclose their uh, EEO1 report, their diversity data, uh, which I think is a really important first step. And, and just to put one last kind of emphasis point on something that Amante was saying is that this isn't just about board diversity. This isn't just about diversity. Uh, sort of gender diversity. It's also about ethnic and racial diversity, cultural diversity, and then the diversity that people have across kind of work experiences. But it's also not just diversity. It's also companies having an inclusive culture. And what we're looking for there are companies with strong hiring practices, strong pay practices, promotion practices, and then also have sort of the presence of policies on on such things, important things like parental leave and disabilities inclusion, LGBTQ plus, um, and and daycare um, as well. So a lot lot of areas here. Uh, you're right, Dan. Absolutely in sort of the S category of ES and G. Um, and for a lot of companies, the value of the company is in their people. And uh, and I think this is a really important area to to really emphasize as we. Um, think about making our investment decisions. All right. So I know we're coming to the end of our time together for today, though. Amanti, Anthony, it was great catching up with you both today on the podcast. Nice being back on again with you all. Appreciate your insights, reflections, outlooks on a range of timely topics. And we'll look forward to picking back up with the conversation in the future. Thanks, Dan. Sounds great, Dan. Thank you very much. Amanti, good to see you again. Great. And again, today we've been joined by Amanti Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Anthony Eames, Vice President and Director of Responsible Investment Strategy for Calvert Research and Management. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.